you have a Bible with you, open with me to Mark chapter 11. Uh, we've been in a series for quite some time going through the Gospel of Mark, and we're at the point in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus is uh, heading towards his impending death on the cross, not only in obedience to the Father, but also for the forgiveness of our sin. And so at this point, as we pick up in Mark 11, there's actually been a whole lot going on in Mark chapter 11. We've seen Jesus um, enter in on a colt of a donkey. So a baby donkey he's written in um, to a cheering crowd because he is ultimately fulfilling a prophecy in the Old Testament in Zechariah 9. And he's coming in claiming and identifying publicly as the Messiah. And we talked about how it was interesting that while he came riding in, declaring to be the king and the rescuer of God's people, he was doing so in a way um, that was humble and not mighty. He didn't come in on a mighty steed. He came in on a lowly little donkey. And as he rode into town, he did so in such a way with a cheering crowd that led him ultimately to a place where, um, where, where people who wanted to believe what they wanted to believe had an understanding of maybe what that meant, but people ultimately walked away not fully getting what he was actually saying. He was declaring to be the king of God who came in humility to suffer and save. While most Israelite people were looking for a warrior king to come and deliver them from the oppression of the Roman Empire. And then we see Jesus come back into town the next day. He walks into the temple courts. And the temple courts, you know, a lot of times we think they're like the small thing. I want you to think of a large county fair on the outer courts where the Gentiles are. And they were selling, uh, price gouging people by selling doves and goats and sheep and a whole bunch of other stuff for the Passover, for the sacrifice. And as they went in there, they were, um, they were just ripping people off. And Jesus comes in with a, a rope that was tied together. And what's interesting to me is I had never caught, as I was preparing for this, uh, for this morning, I had never caught before that um, Jesus had gone in through the triumphal entry, got off his donkey, walked in, and saw what was going on, left, and then he came back the next day. I think a lot of times when we hear about Jesus clearing the temple, we often mis uh, mistake the fact that Jesus wasn't coming in and reactively just having a fit. He came and saw what was going on the night before. He left, and he came back prepared. He began overturning tables and clean, cleaning them off while he had a whip, striking the whip, declaring, uh, this is my father's house, this is a house of prayer, this is my house, and he was identifying with the Father. Along his path into Jerusalem, he saw a fig tree and saw that it was not bearing any fruit. He cursed it. On his way out, the disciples saw that it was dead. And so even his disciples were wondering, okay, what's going on with Jesus? And so we pick up with Jesus now as he's going back into the temple. And we're going to talk about the authority of Jesus. And the word authority in our day and age is a word that people don't really like. I often hear when I'm doing pastoral care or counseling, well, I just have a problem with authority. I don't like authority. What's teenagers' problems? They don't respect authority. What's the problem with criminals? They don't respect the authority of the law. But when we really get down and honest about the issue of authority, the issue isn't just the problem with the people in authority. The reality is, is that we want to be the authority. That we believe that ultimately we are the authority and what we determine to be true is true, and what we determine to be false is false. Therefore, the issue of authority is really a self-sovereignty, meaning we are ultimately, we believe that we are the ultimate determining factor in things. And that hasn't always been the way people think, but today in this day and age, people think that way. They believe that ultimately what's true for me is true for me, what's true for you is true for you, my truth is my truth, your truth is your truth. But the reality is that's always been a sub-issue for people 
people have always wanted to be the final determiner of truth. And so when, when Jesus gets into this dialogue with the religious leaders, we begin to see that there's this tension of authority, this question of authority. And the, the main premise I want to argue today is that the hardness of heart prevents trusting in Jesus and living under his authority. The primary issue of living in a life-giving, connected relationship with Jesus is an issue of a hardness of heart. And we see that with the religious leaders. The, the ones who were questioning Jesus and ultimately betraying Jesus and having him handed over to be put to death were ultimately the ones who should have identified the Messiah when he came. He came fulfilling the laws and the prophecies. He came declaring the truths of God. These were the people that he came for, yet they were the primary ones who wanted him killed. They wanted the power of God, but they did not want the authority of God in their life. They wanted the prestige and the position of knowing God and being God's people, but they didn't want to submit to God's authority in their life. So the hardness of heart prevents trusting in Jesus and living under his authority. The word authority literally means the ability or permission to perform an action. Who has given you authority? It's the ability or permission to perform an action. It's a very simple definition. So if you're driving along, going above the speed limit, and all of a sudden you see some lights turn on behind you, either you pull over or you speed up. And I'm advising that you pull over. I know some of you are in law enforcement, and that's what I would highly recommend you do. If you speed up, then that increases the pressure of that authority upon you. And they begin to call in other cars. And the news helicopters come, and it's a blast to watch on television. Amen? I literally can't watch daytime news because when they cut in with police chases, I'm done for as long as that goes. But they increase the pressure of authority to get ultimate submission. That's how authority typically works. But they've been given that permission to do so by the law and the governing agencies and body to then enforce the law or rules. And so this question of Jesus' authority is coming from who has given you the right. It's basically a question of who do you think you are to do these type of things, to claim these claims that you're making. And that's a question that Jesus has been dialoguing with his disciples specifically about since Mark chapter 8. But in Mark chapter 11, verse 27, we, we pick up with, with him going into Jerusalem. And they came again into Jerusalem, and he was walking in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Essentially, they come to him and say, who do you think you are? To come in here and to start disrupting our business, to disrupt our quote-unquote ministry, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to speak on behalf of God? Who do you think you are to ride in on a colt of a donkey so that you can come in with some sort of authority? Who do you think you are? What, where have you gotten this authority? And so you would understand these people who have been in leadership for generations now having their position threatened by this guy who had not gone through the orders of training that they have gone through, yet still coming in, speaking, and teaching in ways that are different than the way they've been teaching and speaking. The question of Jesus' authority is not a new question that's been happening. In fact, we see in Mark chapter 1, verse 22, his authority of teaching. It says that they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And so part of the group that's questioning him now 
were already being devalued back in Mark chapter 1. He was teaching with such power and authority, with such life-giving truth, that those who were in authority, the words they spoke were so shallow and empty. They were being rejected, and Jesus was being followed. We see the authority continue on in Mark chapter 1, verse 27. In his authority to cast out unclean spirits, he was throwing out demons. People were possessed by demons, and at his word and by his command, these demons would acknowledge him and then flee from him. It says, and they were all amazed, and they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. This authority, this permission given to Jesus, allowed him to speak and to act with consequence. The religious leaders would speak and they would act, and their aim was to get the people to go along with their behavior modification, to change their behavior in such a way that helped benefit their purposes. But Jesus came in, disrupting all of that by proclaiming the gospel of Jesus, uh, uh, God's kingdom, and his gospel so that there was transformation. People were not the same. There was consequence. Something happened as a result of something else. They came into the presence of Jesus, and they were changed in the way that they, th they thought, and they were changed in the way that they lived. There was actual transformation. And so they questioned his authority. Who who is this guy? What is he teaching? And how is it that he has the power and authority to cast out these demons? But he then took it a step further in Mark chapter 2. He had the authority to forgive sin. Now, no one has the authority to forgive sin but God alone. And so Jesus, in effect, was identifying the fact that he was indeed God. He wasn't just claiming to be God, but illustrating that he indeed was God. In Mark chapter 2, verses 10 and 11... He had just had a man lowered in through uh, uh, the roof of a house. I mean, can you imagine? You're hanging out at home. You're having a community group. Your community group leader's in there teaching. And, and all of a sudden, Paul Benitez, our community group leader in, in Wood Forest, has started you know, healing people and praying for people. And you're over at the Vaughn's house. And the Vaughn's, all of a sudden, you hear this jackhammer and this saw coming through your roof. And your roof falls through. And people start lowering this guy in on a gurney. Every Tuesday, that's what Paul says. So... Need healing, go to Paul's community group. So, but I mean, they, they disrupted to lower it in, and they wanted the felt benefit of Jesus being able to then remedy this man's illness or his flaws or his brokenness. But instead, before doing that, he told them, your sins are forgiven. And then he healed him to display his authority over ailment and illness and brokenness to affirm what was most important, his ability to forgive sin. The Bible is very clear that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all missed the mark. We've all lived at times and in ways that have gone against God's ways. We're all in need of this forgiveness. And Jesus not only says he has authority to forgive this man's sins, but he displays this authority by healing his body, by making him whole and telling him to get up, take up your mat and go. But that you know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So they were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. And so the people were thrilled at Jesus' power and his ministry. They were thrilled by the power of God to change their lives, not just to make them behave better. 
And I think a lot of people have narrowed down church and Christianity to being, hey, we want to modify your behavior to make you act a certain way, vote a certain way, speak a certain way, to do certain things and not do other things. But that's not really what the gospel is. The gospel is that God, through his son Jesus, has forgiven us so that we don't have to be the same. That we can change and we can be transformed and that we can be different. He has the authority and power to forgive sin. His teaching actually brings life. The same words that were spoken at the beginning of time to create all things are the same words being spoken to bring forgiveness of sin and wholeness in your life. And so this authority that Jesus has, they're primarily speaking to what gives you the authority to disrupt our time of worship by throwing over our tables. I was thinking about this, and I would probably have a similar question if someone came in and started flipping over tables in here and tossing donuts on the floor. I think there would be pandemonium by many of your families if someone started ruining our donuts. Amen? But if someone just walked in and started whipping things and throwing whips at people and chasing Gatlin off stage and kicking over the drum kit, you have authority to shoot, ma'am. I mean, you stop that person. Jesus walks in, starts throwing over tables, whipping at people, declaring that his house is a house of prayer. He's saying the temple is his. He's identifying as God. And so this isn't a light incident. It's Jesus coming in fully declaring who he is. And he's been doing so the entire time, but people were running after the benefit of Jesus, but not the authority of Jesus. They wanted his help, but they didn't want to know him. And oftentimes that's where we sit today. We want the benefits of knowing Jesus. We want to have the, the comfort when we need comforting, but we're not willing to submit and follow the authority of Jesus. And I'm included with that. I have to catch myself always gauging ultimately, and I'm trying to discipline myself and, and continue to foster the habit of comparing all things to the Word of God, but also my preferences are pretty loud. And I know I'm not the only one. The authority of God and the authority of God's word oftentimes go through the lens and the filter of my preferences and my opinions and my worldview. And part of being renewed in our mind is having our worldview and our preferences shifted so that we're not just viewing things in a way that uh, is self-glorifying or self-edifying, but is transformative, that is life-changing, that is bringing about a real transformation in our lives. And so Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And if you're just catching up with us here in the Gospel of Mark, John the Baptist was massively popular with the common people. He was calling Jewish people who by birth were supposed to already be right with God to repent and be baptized, to enter into another form of of submission to God to say they're sorry and change their course and begin to align themselves with the kingdom of God to go through this submissive act of cleansing and washing so that they can begin to walk through the fulfillment of God's promises through Jesus John was wildly popular but ultimately put to death by Herod after a provocative dance by his stepdaughter led him to have to follow through with her request to have John the Baptist's head on a platter. John the Baptist was put to death. The religious people didn't like John the Baptist because he was calling religious people to repent, even them, to change their heart, to change their mind, to be reunited with God through the kingdom of God and the person of God in Jesus. 
And so Jesus asked them this question. It's a brilliant question. And it's a common rabbinic approach. As a rabbi, this is what rabbis would do. They would answer a question with a question. But the purpose of this question isn't just to get into some sort of verbal sparring to see who's right or wrong. The purpose of these questions was to get at the heart. And that was Jesus' business. Even when he's healing or feeding people or casting out demons was ultimately to clear the way to the person's heart. To get there. To speak to it. To transform it. He's after the heart, not just the mind. And so he asked this very simple question. So I'll answer you that if you tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? <clears throat> answer me. Now, they're not foolish people. I think a lot of times we try to downplay the intelligence of these religious leaders. Their issue wasn't lack of intelligence or inability to think. Their problem was they had a hard heart and they liked the power and authority that they had. And this was disrupting that. And so we pick up in verse 31, it says, and they discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe in him? But shall we say from man? And they were afraid of the people for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. It's brilliant. This is absolutely brilliant. He pushes these leaders back into a corner and he says, okay, tell me, is it from God that John the Baptist did these things? Because I'm continuing on with what John the Baptist did. So he's lining himself up with this prophet. And the people largely, popularly, believe that John was sent from God. And by and large, we saw in Mark chapter 8, they believed that Jesus was sent by God. They just didn't yet understand that he was indeed God. And so either they had to say, okay, the baptism of, of, of John was from God, therefore you are from God, and we are wrong, and we repent. They would have to own the fact they are wrong, or they would have to say what they really believe, which they really believe was it was made up by man. And if they said it was made up by man, many who followed them would rebel. And so they considered the costs, and they came back with a very compelling answer. And they discussed it with one another. We say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe in him? But shall we say from man, they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. If you're not going to say, I'm not going to say. So who do you think you are? Who do you think John is? We're not going to say, well, neither will I. It wasn't that he was just trying to outwit them. He's trying to expose their hearts. He's trying to help them to see the truth about God's kingdom. He's trying to show them the error of their way. He's trying to knock on the door of their lives and say, hey, by the way, you're rejecting John the Baptist. But here's the deal. This isn't the first time religious leaders rejected the prophets of God. You can read throughout the Old Testament of how continuously God's people, his spokespeople, were rejected by mankind, rejected by his chosen people because they loved their way more than they loved God's way. You see a recurring theme building throughout the whole of Scripture that picks up in this passage right here. They loved their way more than they loved God's way. And that theme continues to carry out even in the life of a church today. We love our way more than we love God's way. And so it becomes a question of authority. Who has permission to 
order our lives and who shall we then submit to so that we live obediently to their way? And a lot of people want to ultimately say, I do. But when you are the final authority, you're at odds with God. The first thing we see through this passage is that Jesus is more concerned about addressing the heart than changing a mind. He's not just looking to be right for right's sake. And I think the way Christians engage with dialogue with people who do not yet believe, we do so more defensively, and we do so in such a way that doesn't make us feel or look stupid or rejected by people we're talking to, or we don't say anything at all, because we care more about our appearance than we care about the other person. And when that happens, we find ourselves maybe agreeing with God, but not allowing our heart's affections and our, our life's loyalties and our mind's attention to be united with God through His Son, Jesus. And, we, and when we lack this unity, we begin to feel and experience this deep disparity, disparity between what we say we believe and what we do. I think that happens a lot in the church, especially for individuals who grew up in the church. They grew up in the faith. They've learned the right things to say. Um, I remember when I was a youth minister, um, I would talk to students all the time who, just to get their parents to leave them alone, they would say the right answers and learn the right answers. They would speak things about God, but their hearts were far from God, just to get mom and dad off their back. They had no desire to submit to the authority of Jesus, but they said the right words about Jesus so that they would be left alone. And this is a real problem, friends. The issue of these sermons, the reason we gather here to open the Word of God is ultimately to enjoy God, but also that our hearts might be properly realigned. That they might continuously be positioning in such a way to be softened. That we might enjoy who God is. There's a difference between trust and belief and just mere intellectual agreement. And I think many of us live a life not having any of God's power because we might be living in such a way that we say we agree with God, but our lives are separate from the power of God. Because intellectual agreement is not the same thing as full-on trust. And the reason that we don't trust is because we have hard hearts. The second thing we see is that trusting the authority of Jesus is a crucial aspect of saving faith. I want to camp here for just a minute. Trusting the authority of Jesus is a crucial aspect of saving faith. It boggles my mind how some in the church get to the place they do on how they're reinterpreting what God has taught. But ultimately, it's not a question of, of intelligence. It's a question of authority. Is Jesus really the authority? Does He have the right to identify things that he has created for himself and for his own fame, does he have the right to identify, to define, and to implement those things? Whether it pertains to identity or marriage or poverty or whatever, doesn't Jesus have that right to have authority over those things? And the problem is, even in the church, we're saying, well, that's not what he really meant, or that just doesn't fit with our culture. But our eternal God doesn't change his authority. His authority doesn't change. He's not changing his mind. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. 
and trusting in Him, not just in His ability to save, but in the ownership that takes place where He takes us and He owns us because He's rescued us. There was a purchase that took place on the cross. His death on the cross wasn't merely an eraser board so He could just wipe off your sin. It was a penalty and a payment so that through Him we might be forgiven and acceptable to God. It, It was a substitution so that we then are made cleansed and adopted by God and no longer accountable to God for our sin. It's much more than just Him wiping away our sin. It's Him paying for it and then adopting us. And so trusting in Jesus isn't merely saying, yeah, I'll apply that insurance policy to my life for later on. It's ultimately saying there was a transaction that took place from death into life, from sin into forgiveness, and through that transaction, then identity and purpose has changed. And with that transaction, we are then under the authority of our Savior. And that should, that should change things. That should bring effect. And, and, and hear me, if you've been here a while, you know I don't preach perfectionism. I believe it's impossible on this side of heaven to be perfect before God. While God sees us perfectly, it does. we do struggle with temptation. We do struggle and sin. But when the authority of Jesus is really increasing in our life, what, one thing we do see is that we're trusting in Him for that hope of change, for that hope of forgiveness, but we're agreeing with Him more often when we're missing that mark. There's a deeper humility that happens where, you know what, I really messed up the other night. I said things that I shouldn't have said. I've done things I shouldn't have done. Man, I've offended God. I may have offended other people. I'm deeply sorry. I'm, gonna, you know, I'm going to hope in Him and the ways that He's provided for me to grow in Him so that that doesn't continue to occur. But many times, instead, instead of going under the authority of Jesus and hoping in Him for that liberation, we hope to our logic and our own self-justification. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to do better. That's one end of it. And on the other end of it, we say, well, he'll forgive me anyway, and we're flippant about it. We say that we care, but we end up not caring at all. So as we see this unpacking, and as we see this coming together, we have to understand that trusting the authority of Jesus is an important aspect. It's crucial to saving faith. Those of you who are more theologically inclined, you might be saying, well, Casey, are you saying that there's a lordship salvation, that in order to really be saved, we've got to work to obey Jesus, right? I, I would think of it differently. I think there's a better way to think about that. If Jesus has authority and is the Lord, and then you trust the authority of Jesus to forgive your sins, he then therefore is your Lord. You can choose to obey or not obey, But along the way, life gets very uncomfortable if you constantly walk in disobedience. And if there's a perpetual rejection of, a hardness of heart of, and rebellion against the person and work of God, then it's hard to say that you know the living God. And people like to defend themselves, say, well, you you can't see my heart. You're right, I cannot. As a pastor, my job isn't to see your heart. That's God's business. But we can't assess fruit. 
and assess the ability and willingness to realign our lives and to, as we put in church, repent. But really, that's literally changing our mind and changing our direction. That when we're not lining up with God and His Word, are we willing to be humble and say, I've missed the mark. I have rebelled against God. I need forgiveness. This must go so that I can have more of God. In fact, I think we oftentimes as Christians, we ask the wrong questions. How much can I get away with and still be okay with God. I think a better question would be, what needs to go from my life or come into my life so that I can enjoy God more? As we're coming and aligning ourselves under the authority of Jesus as a crucial aspect of saving faith, that must be a gauge of our hearts and life, realizing it's no longer my kingdom. I'm no longer just living for myself. I'm living and orienting my life around the things that matter to God. And if it matters to God, then it matters to me. And if it doesn't matter to me, I'm the one who's off and not Him. But we won't really begin to see real transformation in our church and in our families and in our community until we begin to acknowledge and understand the authority of Jesus Christ is crucial to our faith. If He has the power to create, to restore, to forgive, and to save, we need to hope in that authority alone. And that shouldn't be oppressive or limiting. That actually should be liberating. It should free us. That He is in control and that He's mindful of us and that He cares for us. I was reading an article yesterday about the history of invitations in the church. And if you're new to church, you haven't been in church in a long time, um, some churches have invitations where they invite you to come forward, pray a specific prayer, and then trust Jesus. And the author was talking about that that was a newer advent in church history, um, especially the altar call, within the last couple hundred of years. But that in the Bible, typically, that's not really how Jesus called people to himself. And actually, we've talked about this before in Mark chapter 8, verse 34. When Jesus then has a determined relationship conversation with his disciples, he calls the crowd to him with his disciples, and he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Denying yourself is merely shifting your focus from your kingdom to his. To acknowledging ultimate ownership right is his and not your own. Denying yourself isn't thinking poorly of yourself or less of yourself or hating yourself. Denying yourself ultimately is having the miracle of not thinking of yourself at all. Taking up your cross isn't taking up the cross of Jesus, but saying ultimately, my life is under the authority of someone else, namely Jesus in his kingdom. And it's aligning ourselves under the authority of Jesus. Taking up the cross, and he gives this command to follow me in an ongoing perpetual way. Follow Jesus. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, we don't invite you to just come pray a prayer. We invite you to turn away from a life that leads to death to a life that leads to life by turning and following Jesus. Acknowledging that you've offended God, asking God for forgiveness through His Son Jesus, and then beginning to walk in obedience to who He is. That's the good news. That no matter where you are or how bad you've been, that is the ultimate hope. That you can turn to Jesus and trust in Him for the forgiveness of your sin and allow Him through His authority and by His power to then begin to lead you toward a life that lasts forever. That's good news. But until we hope in that authority, that He actually has the authority to forgive sin and to create new lives and to give us hope and to free us from addictions and to heal our marriages, until we have hope in that... It's just an intellectual assent to some facts. Until we submit to follow Jesus, 
to live our lives not for our kingdom but His, to take up His cross, come under His submission, and to follow Him and follow Him and follow Him. But I'm not sure what we're doing. But what we see primarily in this passage also is that the fear of man ignores the authority of Jesus. That's a big contributor. It's definitely a hard heart that's more concerned about self. And while, yes, in this passage it's speaking about it is speaking about that these men, these leaders were fearing the rebellion of man and so they changed their position or, or said nothing at all. It was clear that they did not believe he was sent from God. They believed he was sent from man. And they wanted him to stop it. But because they feared man, they wouldn't stand up for what they said they believed. But conversely, that's also true for believers today. That the fear of what other people think, it, it keeps us from aligning our lives with Jesus and the authority of Jesus. The fear of man prevents us from obeying him. The fear of man prevents us from acknowledging him. The fear of man keeps us from caring about the things that God cares about and longing for those who are far from God to be reconnected with God. And so I think it's easy to say that we, we deny the authority of God because we are pursuing sin and we, we, we like the things that we like, which is partly true. But, but part of the reason we ignore the authority of God is because we're afraid if we obey the authority of God, what that might mean for our, fa uh, for our families and our marriages and our friends and our extended family and our jobs. And Jesus speaks often about the fear of man and so does the rest of Scripture. But in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, he says, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. This ultimate crippling fear of mankind prevents us from submitting to the authority of Jesus. We're unwilling to align ourselves with God because we're crippled by the fear of mankind. Jesus coming in, turning over tables and standing up for the things of God, being an advocate for the oppressed, both physically, economically, but more importantly, spiritually oppressed, him standing up and for them and advocating on their behalf to these religious leaders who are taking advantage of God's people. We see our King Jesus not afraid of what they might think and ultimately what they will do. He knew exactly what they will do, yet he did not function in fear, but rather he walked in obedience. The fear of man did not hinder Jesus from obeying the Father and advocating for his authority. That ultimately the fear of man led his disciples to betray him and abandon him and run from him when he was ultimately arrested. The fear of retribution of man led them to deny him and to sell him out. The fear of man leads the church today to not stand up for what is true and real about the authority of God, but instead what we try to do is stand up for what we believe is right or what would be pleasing to other people. 
If you're here today and you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, I want you to know Christ Community Church is a safe place for you to come and explore what's going on with the faith and what, what these crazy Christian people are believing and talking about. We're glad you're here. However, we respect and honor you enough not to condescend our service, to make it more about trying to, to, to make you like us, because we believe there is a real God who has ultimate authority that has proven his authority through the life and death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. Because of that power of the resurrection, he's proved his authority, and he's extended that authority through his forgiveness to us. We want to be aware that in, in our prayers that people will come in here and join with us who are not yet believers or new to the faith, and they'll be able to grow in their faith. But our ultimate end game is for us to obey the authority of Jesus so that we can be sent by Jesus for the glory of Jesus and the good of people. We want to see people who are far from God get reconnected to God that we want to see hearts that are hardened to the authority of Jesus become softened towards the authority and person of Jesus. And hear, hear me, maybe you're here today and you're like, my heart is hardened towards God. I, I don't necessarily care about the things of God. You can't soften your own heart. You can't agree with God and say, I realize my heart is hard towards you, God. If you're a follower of Jesus and you've been living your own way, maybe the Lord is, is, is helping you to see that your heart is hardened towards God. But if you're here today and you've never known or trusted in Jesus Christ, you can't just choose to have a new heart. You can't just make yourself right with God. That's just more religion. A new heart must be given to you. And this is a prophecy that was given in Ezekiel in the Old Testament, chapter 36, verses 26 and 27. He says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This new heart will be given. That's our prayer. You'll hear me often pray, God, remove hearts of stone and replace it with hearts of flesh. For the believer that is here whose heart is hardened towards the things of God, Acknowledge that to God. Beg God because Jesus Christ is the only one who can soften your heart. And there are ways that we can participate with God in that process as his believers by positioning ourselves to receive the word of God, to hear the word of God through preaching and by opening the word of God and by spending time with other believers and by admitting when we're struggling and asking for encouragement and help. There are ways that we can position ourselves when our hearts are getting hardened. But one of the ways that you know that your heart's Getting hard is either if God is always agreeing with you in your thoughts or if you just don't care what he says. That's evidence of a hardened heart. And the great news is that, that Jesus Christ is able and willing to come and do heart surgery and give you a new heart or to soften your heart or to lead you to a softening and being forgiven and restored and renewed because you cannot give yourself a new heart, but God can. And so when we trust in the authority of Jesus, it leads us to a pursuit of and submission to God's will. We can tell that our heart is softening towards God when we restore our pursuit of Him, when we're hoping in Him for our rightness. And because we've been made right by Him, we then submit to His authority of His word and His commands. We find joy in it and we rejoice in what God is doing. We see our hearts impassioned by the things that make His heart passionate and we see our hearts grieved by the things that grieve Him. We admit when we have wandered and we celebrate when he brings us back. The authority of Jesus is a crucial aspect of our faith 
and the hardness of heart prevents trusting in Jesus and living under his authority. Perhaps you're here and you're not yet convinced that Jesus Christ is the king. Then I would humbly submit that perhaps your issue isn't there isn't enough data or information or proof. Perhaps you need a new heart. And if all of a sudden that clicks and makes sense, then I encourage you, ask God to give you a new heart. Because He probably already is. And align with Him and admit to Him what's going on. And invite Jesus to do a heart surgery. To give you a new heart. And to incline your, your life with His. Because when we trust in the authority of Jesus, the result is a pursuit of and submission to His will. And it's joyful. It's a joyful pursuit. Sometimes when we gather on Sunday, I think we forget the joy that comes from the fact that we don't have to be the authority. That the Almighty God has made a way through His Son Jesus that we have His authority. And because we have His authority, we have His forgiveness, we have His power, we have His presence. And that no matter what's going on in our life, whether we're in grief or our family's falling apart or our finances are in trouble or we're celebrating good things, that we have a God who is able to enter into, to understand and to walk and to heal and to empower. We have a God who aligns with us and walks with us and leads us. And that should bring from us, even in the midst of sorrow, this hint of a hope and joy. So that when we come to sing, it's not as much about, well, I don't know if I like this song. Or the Lord doesn't really show up unless there's a cello. But we come in expectant to meet with God because He is worth it. He has the authority to change your heart. He has the power to do it. If you're not aligned with where He's at, if you don't care with where He's at, agree with Him. Confess that. Tell him, I don't really care. And he'll do something about it. And so I want to pray for us. And after we pray, we're going to respond by taking the Lord's Supper. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gave thanks to God. He took the bread and he said, take and eat every one of you. This is my body given to you as a sign of the new covenant for the forgiveness of your sins. He took the cup and said, take and drink every one of you. For this is my blood poured out for you. And do this as often you, as you gather in remembrance of me. And the way that we do that here at Christ Community Church is we have servers in the front and the back. You tear off a piece of bread and you dip it in the cup. We invite all who are followers of Jesus Christ to come and take. If you're not yet a member of our church, that's okay. But I would guard you, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, don't come and take a remembrance of that which you do not yet know. Before you come to the table, take on a Christ. Hope in Him. Submit to His authority. And be different because of him. So let's pray. Father, we come this morning and thank you that you are our only hope for the softening and removal of hard hearts. Father, in our culture, authority is a tough deal. We, we have a hard time with it. And many of us struggle with it. And many of us can identify more with the religious leaders when Jesus comes and reorders our lives. I think if we're honest, many of us initially respond with, who do you think you are? 
rather than yes, Lord. So I pray that you would help us mature, that there would be a, a, a softening of hearts, a renewed passion, a restored joy, and a desire, Lord, to see your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Father, as we come to remember the great grace that you've given us through your Son, by his body and his blood, I pray that you would change us, that you would restore us, and that you would use us for your glory. We need you, Father, and we pray these things in your name. Amen.